God. It's what motivates drawing closer to God, being the church that God has called us to be, and it urges our unity as well. Um, And so we're going to be looking at verses 2 and 3 today, at attitudes to preserve unity. And I want to just introduce um, those verses um, after kind of reviewing very briefly just a couple of things about verse 1. You remember that the verse says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I just want to ask the question again, you know, what is your calling? If you're here and you've put on Christ, you've, been, uh, you've repented of living in sin, you've dedicated yourself to following Jesus, you've been baptized for the mission of your sins, do you see that you understand what you're called to be? Or do you understand what you've been called into? Because if not, then that's going to hurt in a very dramatic way. It's going to cripple your ability to really be properly motivated or directed um, We talked last month about how when somebody has clarity, even in a worldly sense, of feeling like they have found their calling, that people like that tend to be very motivated to do whatever it is they're doing or invest themselves in whatever they see as their calling. And before we look at verses 2 and 3 as well, I want to ask you with the, the grandness of what we looked at last month, with all of these things involved in how God has called us, what he's called us into, and what his goals are, what his mission is with our redemption and salvation. If someone were to ask you, like, what are some of the core applications or core principles of what it means to you to walk worthy of all of that? Like, what would that look like? If you just had to name, like, two or three things, that if you were going to summarize a worthy walk of God's call, what would that look like? And I want to show you, obviously, the first core things that the Apostle Paul brings up that we need to do to walk worthy. So verse 2 and 3 says, With all humility, gentleness, and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Would those things have met your list of qualities that would be the core fundamental principles of walking worthy? Um, And I think important to note, uh, before we define some of these things a little bit more, if these qualities are not qualities you've been pursuing or qualities that are living in you, then the hard reality is you are not walking worthy of your calling. Like if you are living in arrogance, if you're not being gentle or patient, if you're not striving to show tolerance for others in the faith, in love, If you're not being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, the reality is you are not walking worthy of your calling. And so our goal then is to understand, well, how do we apply these things? How do we make sure that we're walking worthy of all these great things that God has done? And I want to start with this last part of verse 3 that talks about the unity of the spirit. Um, I think it can be really important to define that and notice something in Ephesians 4 that I think is really easy to overlook. I remember the first time uh, this was pointed out uh, in a Bible class or sermon I was listening to. I can't remember which it was, but I remember this blew my mind. I had never realized this before, even though I had read over this multiple times before hearing this. In Ephesians 4, there are two kinds of unity that are in the chapter. The first is the one that we looked at with the unity of the Spirit, right? Which we're told that we need to strive to preserve this unity. 
This is a unity that's already done. Like there's something that God has already accomplished that we are being called to preserve what's already true. But then look at verse 13. It's kind of in the midst of an ongoing sentence, uh, like a lot of sentences in Ephesians. Um, In verse 13, it's talking about the church working together, and it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure and stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So verse 13 is a unity that we're striving together to attain to. So the first kind of unity in verse 3, we're striving to preserve that unity. The second unity, the second kind in verse 13, we're striving to attain to. Um, And if you're like me, um, you may have thought or even think right now that if we don't believe the exact same things on everything, then we are in no way united. And until we all believe the exact same things on everything, we'll never be united. And there can almost seem to be like there's this tension between these two concepts and between these two kinds of unity. Um, There can be churches sometimes that can focus so much on the unity of the spirit that they never actually strive to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And they take pride in having maybe one kind of unity over the other. Another church might focus so much on the unity of the faith and knowledge and maturity that they become so focused on just studying and talking about and agreeing on doctrine that there is no sense of unity of the spirit. There's no attitude really to, to preserve the foundation of their unity together. So I'll suggest to you that it's actually vital that we understand what these two kinds of unity are and how we can be striving both to preserve first the unity of the spirit and then to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity. And I want to maybe put this out there as well. You imagine if our unity is only based in mutual, perfect agreement on everything, what happens when there are new Christians in the group? Or people come from other areas and they may not have the same agreements of understanding on certain things. Does that mean that when people move in or new Christians are converted, that we're not a united church? So oftentimes the answer at a local church are we united? When you take these two kinds of unity into account, the answer is often, well, yes and no. There's a unity that we're striving to attain to, and we're also striving then to preserve a unity that we have. I want to look at, um, in defining the unity of the Spirit a little more clearly, look back at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, and then we'll look briefly at chapter 2, 19 through 22. Just some things that Paul wrote in Ephesians that I think just help to maybe briefly cover what this concept is. And then after this, I just want to very briefly look at how the church at Corinth was urged to attain to unity by reflecting back on the unity that they already had and received in their salvation. Um, So we looked this morning in our Bible class in chapter 2, verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 12, how the call to the Ephesian church was to remember that at one point they were completely excluded from God They were excluded from the commonwealth, the riches that are within the inheritance of Israel. They were excluded from God's promises. They were without hope. But now they've been brought near. And in chapter 1, 13 and 14, um, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, uh, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. 
So just a couple of things on this passage. Really the first two things uh, come from this passage. One, each of us by the Spirit are God's purchased possession. So verses 1 through 14 really outline this grand work that God has done to redeem us all together by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we're all adopted children, mutually purchased, having the same value, God having done the same work to possess each of us for himself and his own purpose. But then you notice it says the spirit of promise, and it mentions that God has pledged something to us. And I think the idea is God has pledged and promised his own presence, that God is fully committed to working out our salvation with a view to eternal redemption, that God is dwelling with each one of us, And so God is patiently striving to make every effort to work out the promise of his salvation from beginning to end. And recognizing that then begins to help us to have a sense of unity in what God has done and what God is doing with each one of us. That, again, it motivates our sense of humility and patience and tolerance for one another in love. Look at chapter 2, 19 through 22. Chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. And if you were in the Bible study, um, this is one of the passages that we, we read just a little bit earlier today. Um, but it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So that last quality there is we're, we're each, we each have been put together as a temple and as a body. And so we'll see this in the Corinthian church as well, but I think the idea is kind of like marriage. You remember in Matthew 19 when Jesus was challenged about marriage and he was asked why Moses would have uh, given permission for divorce if Jesus seems to be teaching something else. And he mentioned at the conclusion of that, What God has joined together, let not man separate. So we can easily choose to separate what God has joined together. Just because Jesus commanded not to do that doesn't mean that nobody does. But it does mean that what God has joined together, he is calling us to understand the value of what he joins together so that we then make every effort to preserve it. So just as serious as the marital commitment is to maintain and preserve The idea of scripture is the church being put together and joined together by the Spirit of God, that same gravity is involved in working to preserve what God has already joined together. So how we can understand this, I think, in a little bit more of a practical way, I want to look at the Corinthian church, and I'm going to have all the verses for this on the board so that we can move through these um, at a kind of brisk pace. But I want you to remember the nature of the Corinthian church, um, especially when the first letter was written. Would you say that the Corinthians were in any way a united church? And in fact, multiple times, Paul addresses the fact that they were very divided with each other. Chapter 1 begins addressing the fact that they were divided, and multiple times throughout the letter, he addresses it again and again. But I want you to consider how in the verses we'll see the Corinthians are being urged toward unity by their unity in the Spirit. So a group that was very divided, that almost seemed to be like internally completely collapsing, Paul was reminding them of things that God had done that were still truths that were meant to motivate them to repent 
and to pursue the unity that God had already intentionally joined them into. So starting with chapter 1 in the greeting, to the church of God which is at Corinth, 1, God reminds them they belong to God. They are a part of the one church that belongs to God. And at the end of the verse, he mentions that they belong to God with every saint in every place who calls in the name of the Lord, both theirs and ours. He reminds them that they've been sanctified. So I have in bold letters there, he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So the way that Paul is urging the Corinthians was they were divided over their sense of identity. And they were trying to be identified and to find a sense of fulfillment in things that were contradicting the identity that God had given them. But who do they really belong to, right? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul reminded them, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. They were in a mind that was unholy. The Corinthians were divided against each other. Uh, In chapter 6, it mentions they were taking each other to court. But they were completely moving away from the mission and the nature of who they really were. They were a temple of God. And so he reminds them that this is who you're supposed to be. This is what God has made you to become. And if you continue to destroy that, God is going to judge and destroy you for destroying his temple. Right? So again, he's urging them to become unified again by what he's already done to unify them in the past. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he talks about how some of them had been homosexuals and murderers and liars, all these lists of different sins, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this last part, and in the spirit of our God. The Corinthians were actively involved in all sorts of unrighteous practices. In the context, he mentions again them taking each other to court and suing one another, but they were even involved in sexual sin and immorality and prostitution. So they were involved in these practices, but what had God done for them? What had God called them into because of this work that was still true? It's not as if if they continued in their sin that everything was going to be okay. But Paul was urging them to come back to the unity of the spirit that then could equip them to pursue the unity of the faith. And in chapter 12, 12 and 13, where Paul is talking about the nature of the body of Christ, he mentions, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The Corinthians were exalting certain characteristics or gifts within the body. Some people in chapter 14 had at that time the gift of speaking in tongues, and it seems like they enjoyed the theatrics of that. They enjoyed the appeal of that. And because they were exalting some people over others, what was happening is the body wasn't functioning as God had designed it to. And they were missing the point and losing their focus. So notice what God had done, how God had unified them, was meant to convict them and urge them to come back to the unity of the spirit, to preserve that in a way that would urge them into the unity of the faith and the pursuit of the unity of the faith. One last application of this. What Paul does in the Corinthian letter, I think, is very important. And it's the same thing he does in the Ephesian letter. 
In 1 Corinthians, there are all sorts of doctrinal problems. And doctrine is absolutely necessary to come to agreement on. And we'll see that in Ephesians 4 as we progress through the letter. But in the Corinthian letter, as important and as vital as it was to address the issues of doctrine, what Paul does is in chapters 1 through 4, he starts with their attitude. Because without the attitude to preserve unity, there cannot be the appropriate perspective to strive to work together to attain to that unity of faith. So, let's get into some of these qualities that come out of this. We have the unity of the Spirit that we're called to preserve. So how do we preserve this? The first command he gives is to have all humility. I think a principle that's just very helpful to have in mind when we're thinking about this is just to understand that we're on a mission to conquer all pride in our lives. And we're not just trying to notice pride, but we're trying to conquer pride specifically with applying God's humility. Just as it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, we need to learn to consider pride to be the enemy of our mission. So we are striving to conquer pride. But really, humility is something that we don't see properly until we see God in his proper context. Um, So I want to look at Psalm 113 and consider God's humility. Please turn in your Bibles um, to Psalm 113. So humility by its definition, like if you're to get like a website or a book that gives you like Greek word definitions and defines them. The word for humility in uh, Ephesians 4 is it's like a compound word that means to be lowered to the ground as the first word and the second just means of the mind. So sometimes the Greek word in other places will be translated humility of mind. Um, So again, the idea of being lowered in mind. And I think that's important to see in Psalm 113. What we're going to see is how God exhibits this quality of being low-minded and what that looks like. Psalm 113 verses 4 through 8. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. So I want to just think about this scene uh, briefly before we look more at these principles. So God is high above all. God is exalted even in heaven above every name and above every authority and above every being. And really there's nobody who has a higher position than God. But notice what the psalmist is recognizing about God and how God uses his position. So your translation in verse uh, 5, I'm sorry, verse 6, the New American Standard says God humbles himself, but your translation may say that God looks down on. So again, it's this idea of God is lowering himself, but it's, it's not just something of behavior. Humility is first something of the mind. Humility, before it becomes a visible behavior, it's an invisible attribute of our thinking. So God doesn't just think in a self-lowering way. Look at what he does to somebody specifically, like a very specific kind of person in verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. 
Just to make sure this is very vivid, have you ever seen somebody digging through garbage? Like somebody who maybe like looks really raggedy and poor and maybe they're looking for food or something. That's really the image here in verse 7. The ash heap is like this idea of God's digging through the trash. And he finds somebody who's been thrown away like garbage. And what does God do with this person who's been thrown away, who's cast out? He takes this person and he puts them not just in a reasonable condition. He raises them up in verse 8 to share royal position in his kingdom with the princes of his people. So one thing I think that's helpful to know about this, humility is relational in its nature. Humility, as it's defined by God, is not just self-deprecating or um, self-lowering. Because a lot of times what you'll see is people will just put themselves down, right? Like they'll kind of bask in feeling weak or being discouraged by their sin. And they'll just kind of say, like, I'm so awful, I'm so weak, I'm so useless. But really, that's not humility. Humility is relational. It's how I see those outside of myself. So God doesn't just see those in heaven. He looks down on not just those of earth, but even specifically the lowest people possible with the intention to bring them high. And God's lowliness isn't evident just in exploring his mind independent from others, but God makes his humility evident in how he treats others, and it's in those he has exalted that his character becomes evident and clear, right? Last thing about this, in verse uh, 5, God is uniquely humble. So you and I, when you think about the concept of all humility, there may be areas of our life where there is humility, but I think you might be me where you recognize that really if your life was to be put under a magnifying glass and we were to say, let's just search out any areas of pride that might be in your life. In my life, you would find a lot of pride. And so the goal is to not have any person as our standard of humility, but to recognize that God, as he is holy, God alone exhibits truly the character of humility to its fullest measure. When I was younger, um, I used to like drawing a lot, and it was kind of like uh, even an obsessive thing that I enjoyed. And um, sometimes people would like compliment my drawings, and that would make me feel really good. But then I would find somebody who is like my same age who could draw like infinitely better than me. And that would make me really upset and it was very humbling. Um, because once you meet somebody who has a quality that you've taken pride in, but they've taken it to an incomparable measure compared to you, you recognize that maybe you weren't as good as you thought you were, right? Maybe you didn't deserve the praise that you thought you did even from yourself. When we measure ourselves to God, when we look at the humility that's in the world, but then like the psalmist, we actually recognize what God has done, everything else begins to fall so short. It's just not even going to fit the category. So I want to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 as well. Um, humility is mentioned twice in this passage, and Glenn looked at this this past Wednesday evening. Um, Jesus obviously took the invisible humility of God and he brought it into a visible reality. So we can actually see this much more clearly when we see Jesus. And the amazing thing about this, there's so many layers to this. 
Jesus both embodied the living reality of God's humility, but when it mentioned that God lifts the poor and the needy from the ash heap, Jesus is that needy man. Jesus is the one who is the guarantee that when we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. But not only that, because of Jesus, we share in that story. We looked at Ephesians 2 when it talks about how God, when we were dead, raised us up to newness of life, exalted us to be seated with Jesus. And so as Jesus was exalted as a prince of God's people, we as well share in that story so that we can understand as receivers how we've received the humility of God. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we'll look more specifically at this. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow uh, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in order to have all humility, we need to learn to imitate Jesus' mind, right? Um, when I was thinking about how to teach on all humility, there were a lot of like examples of humility. I was, um, I was hearing from people I was asking uh, questions to about this concept of what does all humility look like. And with examples of humility, it always seemed like behaviors of humility exhibit qualities of what humility is, but never actually like what all humility is. So I think really until we get a grasp on Jesus's example in mind, we're really not going to arrive at the right place of what all humility really is, at least enough to be able to imitate it the way that we see someone like the Apostle Paul imitate it. So first simple thing, humility puts God's will first. Humility recognizes the source and giver of glory. Humility measures things in relation to that source of glory or to that giver of glory. And when I recognize that God is both the source and giver of all glory, then I can then set aside everything that contradicts that glory, everything outside of the realm of that glory. Because when I recognize and receive a glory of one kind, then I'm equipped to then begin to set aside all glory of another kind. So notice how Jesus did this in Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse uh, 7. First thing the New American Standard says is he emptied himself. So because Jesus recognized God the Father as the source and giver of all glory, he was willing to set aside himself completely. And what that meant in verse 8 was becoming obedient even to the point of death. So humility recognizes there is no glory in my will. There's no glory in anyone's will. There is only glory in God's will. 
And so humility sets aside all that contradicts and stands in the way of God's glory, even will. Humility also depends on God's justice and vindication. So when I was thinking about this concept of all humility, this, this really hit me um, how much humility depends on the guarantee of vindication from God. Humility will inevitably be overlooked. It will suffer abuse and be taken advantage of. It won't be recognized. And so because of what humility by nature will suffer, without the absolute guarantee that God will reward and repay all that is lost, that God sees and will give comfort to everything that's hurt, that God will validate and exalt all those who humble themselves to the point of suffering and loss in the present, humility is crippled without those guarantees. But when we have the guarantee that God will absolutely exalt, God will repay, God will validate, he will vindicate, when we understand that God has already given the guarantee of these things and the truths that are inherent in our unity in the Spirit, we are then equipped to begin to set aside all things that the world cannot set aside because they lack the faith and understanding of that guarantee. So notice in verse 10 and 11, God gave Jesus the name above every name and gave him a position above all because of his humility in humbling himself even to the point of death. So humility sets aside everything for the sake of the glory that God gives. Humility also seeks to get out of the way of God's mission to give glory. So Jesus wasn't just becoming generically obedient because that was just God's demand. But the point of the cross was God's will was ultimately to share that glory, to give that glory, that God was trying to bring more people into that glory. And so Jesus' mission was not just to obey for the sake of obedience, but understanding the purpose of God's glory was to bring more people into that glory and share it. Um, gentleness, patience, and tolerance. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Really, all of these qualities, I think, are a fluid extension of humility. If, if we recognize that God gives glory to the lowly, that humility then equips me to notice the needs of the weak and to act on those needs, to seek to, seek to share glory with the humble and exalt those who are um, humbled, then we can begin, I think, to apply these qualities in their proper context. But in 2 Corinthians 11, I just want to start this off really thinking about how easy it is to misapply these qualities. Because there can be the thought, if, if we have to preserve the unity of the Spirit and be tolerant and gentle and patient, doesn't that mean that we'll end up overlooking or tolerating things that we shouldn't? Doesn't that mean that there might be people practicing sin or teaching things wrong? Are we being called to tolerate those things? Look at 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1. So Paul admonishes them, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, uh, but indeed you are bearing with me. And Paul is taking kind of like a sarcastic air because the Corinthians were ironically really being impatient and intolerant and harsh with Paul while being gentle, patient, and tolerant with false teachers who were exalting themselves. Look at verse 4 of the same chapter. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit with which you have not received, 
or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And that's the same word for tolerance in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 19 and 20, again of the same chapter. For you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. So patience and tolerance does not mean that we're not bold in confronting sin. It doesn't mean that we tolerate foolishness or false teaching. It doesn't mean that when somebody is showing prideful attitudes that are divisive in God's work that we just turn a blind eye to that and hope that things will change without confronting it or speaking on it. So the humility of God does not lack at the same time the bold resolve to stand for what God has called us to stand for, but to be patient with what God has called us to be patient with. So look at Mark chapter 9, verse 19. Kind of an interesting passage that, again, has the same word for tolerance here, translated in a different way in Mark chapter 9, verse 19. Mark chapter 9, verse 19. So this is after Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. His appearance became different. The disciples, they come down, the three who are with him. And they find that the disciples who were at the bottom of the mountain were trying to heal a demon-possessed boy. And his father comes to Jesus and he mentioned that he had asked his disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not. And in verse 19, he answered and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I... And here's the word, put up with you, bring him to me. So what do you think is the answer to that? How long shall I put up with you? How long did Jesus put up with the disciples? Forever and ever. And this doesn't sound very gentle or patient for Jesus to say this, right? I think the disciples, their inability to cast out this demon was because they were becoming arrogant. They were following Jesus, but they weren't understanding how much they needed gentleness, how much they needed patience, how tolerant Jesus was having to be of them. And so then they weren't having the kind of humility in their ministry that was equipping them to share in Jesus' power in person. So one thing that I think is important to note here, Jesus' gentleness, patience, and tolerance wasn't just an automatic, robotic thing that he was doing. It was a deliberate choice of self-denial. So just like we might be tempted to get frustrated with each other, become impatient, or be harsh with each other, Jesus faced that same temptation. And I want to ask you this. How patient do you think Jesus is with you? How gentle do you think God is being with you? how much do you think God quietly tolerates with you? I think if the disciples really listened and got this, they would understand that they don't have the right to show anyone impatience. They don't have the right to be harsh or intolerant. And when we understand how God is with us first, it then puts us in a position to recognize we can make that same choice by faith. Another thing about this is the second principle here. The apostles were Jesus' heaviest burden. You know, I don't know if you've noticed, but oftentimes it's the people who are closest to us that we tend to be the most impatient with. And it's the same with Jesus. The disciples were his heaviest burden. They were with him all the time. 
And he was constantly fighting with their lack of faith and their misunderstanding of his ministry, their misunderstanding of his identity. But they weren't just his heaviest burden, they were also his greatest joy. And it's the same with you and me. When we looked at the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, where God pledges and promises his presence with us, that's to assure us that God already understands that the work of our salvation and redemption is going to require everything. That there are going to be weaknesses that we have. There's going to be ways we sin in our salvation. There's going to be ways that we need help from others and from God. But God is already invested as fully as possible to help us to know none of that means he's going to give up and quit. So as much as the apostles were Jesus' heaviest burden, they were also his greatest joy. And so Jesus bore with them for his entire ministry. And these commands are necessary because just like Jesus had to deny himself, we will have to deny ourselves as well. In our relationships with each other, if we're really going to be serious about growing as God has called us to as a local church, we're going to face circumstances where in our interactions, we're not going to want to be gentle. We're not going to want to be long-suffering with each other. We're not going to want to be tolerant of each other. And think as well, would these commands need to be given if it wasn't going to be a struggle? Like, do you think God tells us to be gentle and patient and tolerant because, man, there might be some minor adjustments sometimes, but you'll probably do pretty good. No, these commands are given because these will be the very things that endanger the most fundamental, important, valuable qualities of our unity. And so we have to learn, just as Jesus carried his understanding of the value of his disciples to God with him everywhere he went, we're going to need to reflect on these commands when we don't respond gently or patiently with each other. We're going to need to remember these commands when we're talking to each other, when we're on the way to spend time together. We may have to review these commands in our mind that God has called me in this interaction to be gentle and patient and tolerant. When there's new Christians who are converted, there's going to be a lot of pains and growth that require a lot of tolerance. There's just going to be annoying personality things. There's going to be ways that some people talk. There's going to be backgrounds that people have that all require the willingness to be patient and tolerant in the things that God has called us to for the sake of our unity. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11, and this will be the concluding passage we look at for this morning. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. And I think this helps to enforce, again, the vital importance of learning how to apply these qualities in our interactions with each other and carrying these commands with us when we see each other and are in the world. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 through 9. This comes right after a very clear messianic promise, prophecy. And after that messianic prophecy of Jesus comes this prophecy of what the church will be like in verses 6 through 9. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you just imagine this? What if in this building, 
you know, we cleared out the pews and we just had a little wide open space. And you bring in a wolf and a lamb, a leopard and a young goat, a calf and a young lion, and a little boy. Can you imagine the chaos that immediately is going to break loose? Because these creatures are all designed to completely consume each other. One is the victim of the other, and that's simply by nature just how it is. But the purpose of the church, as it is in verse 9, that we reveal our knowledge of God by showing a changed nature. That we aren't just people who are serving a system together religiously. That we are a people who understand the living God and a living worth that we've received. That we understand that God has put us together for a purpose. We understand that there is work that God is trying to do with this church that we want to strive to preserve and also not just preserve, but attain to more maturity in. And so the invitation is to not only be what this prophecy calls us to be, but to be a part of it. Jason mentioned the plan of salvation and the simplicity of God's call is to believe that we're separated from him because of our sin, to recognize that his glory has been put at risk in our lives because of our sin, and we're called to repent, follow Jesus, and be baptized in Jesus Christ for the mission of sins so that we can walk in the newness of life and be a part of his mission and work with the church. If there's anything we can do with you this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.